The record label Fresh Selects was started as a blog, but became a full-fledged label a few years ago, capturing a sound that combines jazz, soul, and ambient hip-hop in a way that sounds, well, fresh. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to label owner Kenny Fresh about his vision and the challenges of running an independent label in today's marketplace. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Kenny Fresh. Kenny, welcome to the future of what. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so we're going to do a label spotlight on your label. You guys have been a label since like 2013, that's my understanding. Yeah, we started initially as a music blog in right. 2008 and then transitioned into a label in 2013. So this year is both our five and 10 year anniversary <laughs> at the same time. You're going to have to keep doing that forever. <laughs> yeah, <That's> pretty much. <laughs> That's really Whichever annoying. Whichever one sounds more exciting at the time is the one we'll, we'll roll with. You'll roll with. Yeah. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about how you got into it. I assume you were just a music obsessed kid. Yeah, fully. Yeah, ever since I can remember, my dad was super into music. He had a, an entire room in our house when I was growing up that we weren't really allowed to go into, just called the music room. It was just wall to wall, like library shelves of CDs and records and tapes. And because it was off limits, of course, that was like where my full, you know, attention was, was just trying, you know, to get in there. And whenever he was (laughs) gone, I would sneak in there. And for years, I was too nervous to ever like actually touch any of the cds and listen to them so i would just pull them off the shelves and just like write down song titles or just read them almost like you know like a bookstore so i I knew all of these artist names and album titles and album covers and songs for years before i ever really heard them wow that's cool so ever since then i've just been obsessed with music and what kind of titles did he have? Like, did he have a genre that he particularly liked? Or? Yeah, he was mostly like a, a classic rock kind of guy, like, you know, Beatles, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan. He had like the essentials of other genres. Like he would have like Miles Davis kind of blues, Stevie Wonder, Songs of the Key of Life and things like that. But for the most part, it was just like every rock album that came out from the years 1960 to, you know, current day at the time of the 90s. Like, wow pretty much everything okay i gotta ask you this because this room is like sounding really familiar to me did he also have like his chair positioned and his speakers positioned for like maximum perfect effect (laughs) yeah he actually he would kind of sit cross-legged style on the floor he had like a like a pillow that he would sit on but essentially yeah like everything else is (laughs) almost like the maxell logo yeah (laughs) the the, the tie and the scarf blowing from the you know wind of the sound amazing that's how you know i would picture it yeah that was his kind of like sanctuary from the madness of our of our house did he ever let you in when you got older once he saw that i was interested he would kind of sit me down on like the bed and put a cd in for me and i would listen to it in the headphones and i would just sit there and listen to it from front to back 
so that was big for me because still to this day i'm very much like album oriented first and foremost and that's really a big part of the creative approach i take to the releases we put out is you know the listening experience and making sure all the albums are like really essentialized and you don't want to skip around and there's nothing on there that doesn't lead to the overall experience of the full album you know but some of that was because he wouldn't let me touch the stereo <laughs> so even if I didn't like a song I had to sit through it so that was a big part of it but no he never really did wow. <laughs> like, let me in there I gotta ask now this is fascinating because you are an album person and mm -hmm. you think of it in terms of albums yeah but the way that people are listening to and consuming music right now is totally yeah. through like singles and right. you know they go to SoundCloud and as far as I can tell they just poke around and they're like mm -hmm. listen to a little of this and a little of that do you think that matters at all it does it's definitely something I consider and it's I think it's important to be mindful of both I think some people could kind of use that as a cop-out or a bit of an excuse to not think about the album. You know, like, I'm such a nerd and such a stickler for track order and sequencing and making sure if track two should end in a way where when track three starts, it's... It, there's not any one way it has to be, but it just has to be intentional. Mm -hmm. If it's abrupt, it should be abrupt on purpose and, like, on beat with each other. Or if it's offbeat it should be like just as long as it's intentional is always the main thing i'm you know discussing with the artists when we're kind of finalizing the track list but with that in mind it's also important to to know that you have singles and you have songs that i think like you said soundcloud is a big thing but biggest thing for us is spotify playlists and so a lot of people will only hear the songs from the album that are on playlists you know like when you go to an artist page and you could see which songs have the most every time it's the songs that got on a playlist mm -hmm. that have substantially more plays than anything on the album so it's it's important to have those but even those singles should still have a place in the overall picture of the album not to say every album needs to be like a rock opera or a concept <laughs> album but there should be a theme or at least just an intentional sequence now do you do any production work or do you basically have these conversations with your artists once they've brought you a finished record yeah definitely the latter i always tell artists that i work best when someone brings me an album that's like 90 percent done because if it's 100% done and they're like, this is it, they're not trying to hear any feedback and it's kind of take it or leave it. And that's not really, I mean, if I hear it and I love it and I don't have any feedback, then that's great. But that's, you know, it's rare. But I always like to be a part of that last 10% of like, okay, yeah, all of these songs are great, but have you thought about putting them in this order? Or maybe this song we should take off and make a B-side or, you know, a non-album single or, you know, whatever the case is. I really, you know, thrive and prefer to work like that, whereas I'd never want to be the type of whatever you want to call it, A&R or executive producer who's like telling someone what type of songs to make or, you know, if it's too early in the process to be like, yeah, you should make an album like this or, you know, I always want it to be their idea. And of course, like their creation and stay true to their vision. I just like to help them finalize and kind of actualize those kind of last remaining pieces. But right. I don't do any production myself. I just kind of, you know, try to be like the outside ear, kind of giving feedback and just make them think about things. Because a lot of times I'll bring up, again, track listing or sequencing or mixing, and it's things they hadn't really thought of. They, they were just kind of putting them in 
the order that you know made sense at the time but once you kind of poke holes in it they'll be like oh yeah i didn't really think about that like in that case maybe this song should be the album closer or we should start with this one you know right was Love You by Sir. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Kenny Fresh. So let's talk a little bit, because I'm always fascinated. I mean, you know, I do a lot of stuff with independent labels in the U.S., and I'm just interested in the business part of this. And it's like, if singles on Spotify and SoundCloud and getting playlists and stuff like that is sort of the way of the moment, if not the way of the future, mm-hmm. how are people making money in this environment? Like what happens? Let's say one of your artists gets put on a big Spotify playlist and they get a whole ton of streams. Mm-hmm. 
what happens next? So that is where the importance of having a great album really comes into play because the singles are what will draw them in and not always but sometimes or ideally people if they really like the song they'll then go back and listen to the rest of the album but for us we operate in such a low overhead kind of way that really just getting those songs on those playlists and the streams and the income from that alone goes a long way with us like that could recoup a whole album yeah, just like, you know, we get one song in a playlist and I'm like, oh, okay, like that project is recouped now. Like it's all good. You know, it's all like in the green from here. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, huge for us. I know for a lot of other labels, it's just kind of the beginning steps and they still have so much more to do. But for us, it's like, you know, not like it's our job is done and, you know, it's over, but like that, it, it just goes such a long way for us. But then from there, like, you know, the hope is to build actual fans you can get a lot of plays on a playlist like a lot of the music i work with is like instrumental hip-hop and you know lately it's been called like lo-fi or they keep coming up with all these different kind of subgenre names for it those there's a lot of playlists on spotify for that music but it's very passive listening mm -hmm. where people aren't even looking at their computer while it's playing there's this whole like channel called 24-7 lo-fi beats to do homework to or something like that. And that <laughs> and it's huge. And, and that's actually like exactly what people are doing. Like the, you know, I went to a friend's dinner party the other day and they were playing that type of music in the background. I was like, oh, who is this? And they're like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> like it's just, you right. know, a playlist. So from a just a kind of like streaming revenue standpoint, that's cool, but it ends there. There's almost zero like crossover or follow-up into the rest of the album or and it doesn't really create fans for those artists but for other genres of music and other playlists it really can cultivate a following if it's the right song and and then when they do check out the rest of the album there's enough there where it's not like oh, okay this is the only song they have but if they can skim through and see that the rest are quality then you've really got a fan and then you know hope that they buy a record uh, see them when they're on tour and follow them on their socials so they can find out about the next project. But that's, you know, that's really the hope. What about physical? You guys do some physical manufacturing. Do you just decide yeah. project to project what kind of physical you're going to do? Yeah, definitely. I would love to put every project that we put out on vinyl, but I just know how that goes. And it would just put us in a position where we're just perpetually breaking even. And it puts so much pressure on each project to perform to a certain extent and it's just not the reality of you know because vinyl is just the most expensive you know thing which i'm sure you and the majority of your listeners by now would know so what we do is it's important for me to oh for there to always be some sort of physical element unless it's like an ep then less so but for any lp project we always start with either a cd or a cassette and that usually is just kind of dependent on genre, like for, you know, because we put out all different types of stuff. So for a jazz project, we'll typically do a CD for like the instrumental hip hop. You know, those are usually called beat tapes. So it really lends itself to cassettes because it's in the name. And then if they do well, there's always that, you know, window left open to put it on vinyl at any point in the future. In my experience, people will still buy it and it'll be the same people who bought the cassette where if you had the vinyl and the cassette available from day one, they're buying one or the other. But if they buy the cassette, and we don't push this too hard, but it really is essentially like a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe. Like, it's one of those kind of cliche fan 
comments where you appreciate the sentiment, but you know, it's just like it doesn't work like that. Whenever we re- announce the album, they're like, Oh, is it gonna be on vinyl? It's just like, I, I wish. And it's either that or like, <laughs> When are you coming to Milwaukee? Or you know, right. it's like, Whenever you know, tell a promoter to book them, like they'll go, but it, you know, it just doesn't work like that. But whenever someone does ask us that, it was just like, you know like the more cassettes we sell or the more like the better this project does like we would love to put this on vinyl you know so like give us a reason Mm -hmm. so then yeah so we've had some projects where they'll come out and then a year a year and a half two years later we'll put it out on vinyl and it'll still do pretty well and it's almost like a reissue Mm -hmm. at that point and it gives the album real second wind you know because we don't really operate in the traditional album rollout you know three month pr campaign and then that's kind of it like you know we'll put out a music video for an album that came out a year and a half ago if we feel like it and you know we feel like people will care about it so yeah i always love to keep that window open and it feels like an accomplishment and and we've learned that the fans are always excited when an album does make it to vinyl because they feel like they were a part of that and they're able to kind of see that journey oh that's cool but yeah, but some projects, if it's an artist where they've had releases on vinyl in the past, we'll, we'll do vinyl, you know, right, right out away. of the gate. But for debuts, yeah. we typically start CDs and cassettes. Right. So with Bandcamp in the marketplace, it's made distribution so easy. You know, a uh, label can do it themselves via mm-hmm. Bandcamp. But for you, like how important is distribution? I mean, in terms of like traditional old school, getting your music CDs and LPs into indie stores? Super important. When I first started the label in 2013 for my first release, I don't even think we were on digital platforms right away. I think I, I wasn't really taking those that seriously at the time. So I was essentially a Bandcamp label. I was a Bandcamp SoundCloud label. And our first release, we just pressed up 300 cassettes. And I just put it on a credit card. And my goal was just to sell out of these 300 cassettes in the first month. And I was like, if I could do that, then we might have something here. And on the 30th day, we sold our 300th you know, <laughs> cassette. And I was like, oh, okay, like this might you know, be a thing. And then a friend of mine was working at a digital distributor at the time and she was like hey like how come your stuff isn't on itunes and spotify and i was just like i don't know isn't there like no money in that she's like well there's some money you know at the very (laughs) least i was like okay well cool let's do that so that was how i got my first digital distributor and then physical i don't remember how it came about but it's it's just one of those things that once i got it pretty early on I was like, oh, yeah, like, why wasn't this part of the plan? Like, this is, you know, it's proven to be huge for us, especially when it comes to vinyl. But we go through Fat Beats, who's been really great for us. And they're one of the few physical distributors because they work in the kind of hip hop and, and, and beat tape genre. They're one of the few that actually will distribute cassettes. Mm. You know, they only take like 50 to 100 copies, but still like that's. That's not nothing, especially when, you know, we'll, we'll sometimes only press 300. Right. But then for vinyl, that's been huge. And and we've just, you know, grown with them and ha- have had a really good relationship where when we need it, they'll like give us a, a P&D where they kind of front the cost of manufacturing vinyl and will be the exclusive distributor for that for us. So it, it, it's still pretty important, but we don't, the type of genre I work in for CDs, it's still not as well represented as I wish it would be. I know for indie or just more rock-oriented labels, CDs are still 
I don't know. I know, I know everyone is, you know, CDs are kind of hurting all around, but at least a lot of labels can get their CDs in stores. For hip hop and jazz and R&B, it's not really, those titles aren't really getting ordered the same way. So it's still a bit of an uphill battle for us. But with vinyl, we've been pretty fortunate. Yeah. So I just, I'm fascinated. I'm always fascinated with this question. So I just want to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. So Spotify has very vocally lately made everybody aware that they are basically getting into the label business. Yeah. They're turning themselves into a label, which is really interesting because Mm -hmm. to date they have hired very few people from the actual music industry. So that's a fascinating (laughs) decision on their part. But I'm wondering, because like you said, the genre that you're working in is absolutely over-indexing on Spotify. Like there's a lot of playlists that do exactly the type of music that you do. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure you're the kind of, you know, it's going to be those types of artists. Are you worried at all about, you know, artists thinking that making a direct deal with Spotify is somehow better than a label deal? Not fully. It's not something I'm losing sleep over. I think there always will be a need for labels like myself and you know spotify isn't the only thing that we do and even though for some of our projects it can be a decent majority of the income it's not the only and so if that's the only place where you're represented or the only focus of a release it's not really going to be enough especially as far as just longevity goes and there's just so much more i typically work with a lot of first-time artists like almost every artists we've put out we've been the first and usually the only label they've ever worked with so there's a lot of kind of onboarding i have to do to kind of explain that but there seems to be this kind of assumption that all the label is doing is kind of pressing upload and they're like i could do that myself now i'm like you could have always done that like it's never (laughs) been that hard to get on you know spot of like you you can pay what ten dollars for TuneCore or something like that and be everywhere But then, you know, I I, I saw a statistic one time, I forget the number, it was a crazy high percentage of songs that are on digital platforms that have never once had a single download or stream. It's like 99% or something. It's crazy. It's It's insane. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you can get on there, but like, but then what? You know, like if you don't know the people on these platforms that you should be pitching to and the way to pitch to them and the timeline, you know, you can't. A lot of artists will have a release out that's been out for like a month and they're like, hey, how can I pitch this for playlists? And kind of like there's not too much you can do at this point. Most editors are really only considering stuff with lead time and, Mm -hmm. you know, at least a few weeks out. So it's inevitable that there's going to be we're in such an artist-friendly culture right now, and as we should be. So it's inevitable that those opportunities are going to become more and more available and direct deals will become more common, but I don't think they're going to replace labels as a whole. I would think, if anything, it almost... In, cer- in some aspects, I feel like it's more of a threat to major labels than indies because I think they would handle a lot of the things that majors do, but the the more hands-on, you know, as cliche as it is, curated approach of indie labels, I think they just don't have the bandwidth or the experience or the 
time and care for, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that's what I say too, is that I don't think, certainly indie labels shouldn't be particularly worried about this. Yeah. But it's because we provide a service that other people aren't providing. And just like you, I mean, your label is a perfect example. It's like, I always say that indie labels are the risk takers of the music industry. Because we're the ones who are willing to put up money when nobody else has on a completely new artist. And you have no data or traction Mm -hmm. behind you that, you know, can prove that you're worth any sort of investment or Mm -hmm. time. Indies will be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm down to take a loss or, you know, on something I believe in or. <laughs> I say that every day. I'm down <laughs> yeah. to take a loss. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> What's money? It's you Thursday. Know, I could lose I some could of lose it. some money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also just like I said earlier, just the way that I've been able to kind of figure out my process. My projects really aren't that much of a risk and they're pretty calculated risk. We keep a really low overhead. So even if a project completely tanks and just goes nowhere. No one project failing would kind of bankrupt the label or, or put us out of business. Right. Um, it would take, you know, quite a few of those at once for right. it to just be over, which is always a possibility. But yeah, we keep things pretty close to the chest in that regard. Where majors don't even know how to do that. No. They don't know how to put well, out a release for less than model. fifty thousand yeah. or hundred. It's know? not their business model. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
That was Ya Ya by Low Leaf. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Kenny Fresh. So you've had some, I don't know if, I don't know how to put this exactly. You've had some of your artists move to bigger labels, mm-hmm. which has been cool yeah. because it's clear that the bigger labels are taking notice of your label. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it comes directly from us. Like they'll reach out to us to kind of see what's up with the artist and fly us out and have us kind of be a part of that process. But other times, I don't think to this day they've ever heard of Fresh Selects and they just find the artist, right? which is fine too. Even that is validating in the sense of like, oh, okay, like my ears or my instincts were on point in that case. But yeah, it's been really cool to, to see that happen and I'm always happy to be a part of that. And from a business standpoint, it's it's been a positive, too, because the records that we've made together, you know, stay with us. And so our back catalog, just like I was saying with the vinyl reissues, that can kind of give an album a, a real 
big second or even third win that's sometimes even bigger than when it initially came out. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so we've really benefited from a lot of that backdraft (laughs) of someone, you know, of, of a bigger label being able to invest more money than we could have or just have a bigger audience that they're now exposing this artist to. And yeah, I mean, when I first started the label, because I was a brand new label and I didn't have much of a budget, I hadn't put much out yet, so I hadn't had much successes. Every artist I signed was just to a one-off deal. And almost 100% of those artists all got picked up (laughs) by (laughs) either a major or a significantly bigger indie label. So after like the fourth or fifth one, I was like, okay, like I think we're now at a point where we no longer need to offer (laughs) one-off deals. So then, you know, that's changed the structure of our deals. And now there are always multiple projects. So now when we, we debut artists in a bigger label, wants their next album that kind of puts us in the picture where we can be involved and kind of have to be involved exactly so that's that's been pretty cool to see you know happen and has added a bit of a security to it as well for sure because you know as as much as it has been a positive it is also like oh man like it would have been really (laughs) great to put out that next album too especially you know the debut is like that's the hardest part is introducing an artist to the market so we're like we did all the hard work i mean even if this album does well like that next album is gonna be you know out of here yeah so now yeah we're in a better position for that but yeah we've been very fortunate in that regard Mm. yeah that's awesome so how do you find bands because everyone always wants to know how and our people at labels find bands. Yeah, there's not really any one way. It's just every way. One of the things that really helped was when I was doing a radio show on X-Ray FM and I really gave myself some pretty strict parameters where I was only playing new music that had come out in the last, oftentimes the last you know few weeks, at most the last few months. And I would never play the same song twice and play the same artist, you know, maybe every week, but never the same song. So I was constantly looking for new music and I had to find new music. This was a two hour show. So I had to fill two hours every week. So just through that process, I mean, it would oftentimes at, at that time, I feel like it slowed down a little bit since then. But at that time, SoundCloud was kind of really ground zero right. for a lot of stuff I was finding. And I've always been, um, like I was saying, Earlier with my dad's music room, a lot of my first experiences with music have just been reading credits and liner notes. So to this day, that's a a big part of how I process music. So if I, you know, especially in hip hop where it's so collaborative, if I really like a song, I'll see who produced it and then see what other songs and what other artists that producer has worked with or or if an artist is featured on a song, then you kind of go down that rabbit hole of, you know, what are their albums like and then what artists are featured on their albums. The rabbit hole goes deep pretty <laughs> quick. Yeah. And so, and on SoundCloud, I just would, you know, followed a few people whose taste I trusted. And would kind of see what they were reposting and would find a lot of cool stuff that way. But it's almost all pretty natural discovery like that. I don't have my email listed anywhere because demo submissions are just nonstop. (laughs) Um, Some people 
will get a hold of it anyways, or they'll hit me up like through the Bandcamp contact link. But the there's been maybe like one or two artists I've ever signed mm-hmm. through that. I will listen to the majority of what comes through. Yeah. But it's usually in a few seconds. I just be like, this is not well, ready. Well, that's the funniest this is not part it. because that's what happens is I get, you know, I get submissions all the time and yeah. part of me just feels like I have to listen. Like, because you don't want to kind of obliged, yeah. And right? it could be the next, it like, could be the next great yeah. thing. But it's but often most of the time, <laughs> like you said, there's someone who's just not ready. Yeah. It's like the first few things they've done or whatever. And sometimes they even say that. They'll be like, yeah, I started making music last month. Yeah, like, exactly. You should not be right. sending I'm 16 out demos just, right now. Well, and, but you see, I feel like the culture is confusing them because of I was course. just looking today. I just got something in my inbox about Billie Eilish, who's 16 years old, right? Right, right. And she had a song, what, two years ago when she was 14 that her That's brother insane. wrote? That's insane. And it got like the most hits on yeah, whatever. It's true. And I'm just like, so that makes people think I can totally do this and be right. the biggest thing in the world tomorrow. Yeah, especially in rap too. Like the, you know, it's been kind of dubbed SoundCloud rap. But a lot of those kids, you know, they'll be like 16 and they just started rapping like a few months ago and they, they go on YouTube and they look up like, ASAP Rocky type beat and they just rap over that right and then it, and it could become a huge hit and then they get like a million dollar major label record deal so I think you're right where I think they do have good reason to think that they are ready right but yeah but that's for me in my personal experience I've, I very rarely have found projects I was super excited about and ready to sign through submissions. Right. But I have had some personal recommendations from other artists or people I trust mm-hmm. who, you know, we just have shared music taste and they'll recommend the artist to me. And that that's a whole nother thing, yeah. you know, because that's just the added layer or filter kind of parsing through it, you know. Yeah, I think that probably we've found more bands. I kill rock stars just from that, from yeah. our artists coming back from tour and being like, right. we played with this amazing band in Michigan or something. Yeah. You should check them out. So. For sure, yeah. I mean, and that's always been my favorite type of music. A lot of my personal music discovery has been like, you know, uh, one of the first artists I've really latched on to is like a, in a teenager when you really start kind of like honing your personal taste of music was like The Roots and D'Angelo and in interviews and on their website they often would talk about Prince and Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye so then I would go back and listen to their influences Mm -hmm. so I've always been interested in what artists do other artists listen to Mm -hmm. and I've found that a lot of the projects I put out are kind of like artists artists Mm -hmm. where sometimes when we'll do PR, we'll try to send it to the traditional avenues. We won't get much response. I'll be like, damn, like I really thought I had something here. And then I'll put it out and then just the other artists who know me or they'll kind of catch wind and then they'll be the ones really just talking about or including it in their mixes or, you know, just kind of sharing it around and it'll really, it'll, it's always a slow burn, but it, it kind of lasts the longest when mm-hmm. it's when it's something like that. So that's always really exciting for me to see yeah absolutely i think that's i think that's true for everybody i mean elliot smith for us was absolutely like an artist's artist yeah, of first course. and it's not like every you know yeah. modern artist in that genre like lists him as an influence right. and that and so then <laughs> you know the the modern day 15 year old me they'll be like who's elliot smith like you know how come my favorite band says that's their favorite artist and exactly that'll you know forever keep your back catalog <laughs> alive which is beautiful and what it's all about is you know, keeping those things available to be discovered for generations to come. Exactly. Right. Well, I think you said it all. Kenny Fresh (laughs) from Fresh Selects, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me.
Is it out of my head? 
That was Hands by Hosanna's. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. We're excited to announce our new podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're so cool, cool. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. You too, cool schmuck. 25 years ago, seminal riot girl band Bratmobile released their debut album, Potty Mouth. I'm sure he told you what we paid him for recording the record. One piece of pizza and one bottle of hair dye. Along with their contemporaries in Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy, Molly Newman, Allison Wolfe, and Aaron Smith pushed the boundaries of music and politics, challenging ideas of who could play music and hold power on stage. These Riot Girl pioneers championed self-expression and visibility for women and girls in the scene, on and off stage. You know, that the models for being a, a woman musician... In my view, and my sort of like small world view then, like not really being a punker yet, was singer-songwriters and, you know, R&B performers and artists. Yeah, it was pretty political. Like, we thought it was important to have an all-girl band and to work with other women. I think it's important for young girls to be able to see kind of images of themselves or ideas of themselves to think that they can do it too. In the early 1990s, this underground feminist punk movement seems to have been just the right idea at just the right time. This whole idea of Riot Girl, it was so instantaneous. It was so, like, everyone was was in. So there was, you know, there were records being put out, there were shows, there was a girl night. It all happened within a kind of a matter of months, you know. And the media situation was, it was pretty intense. They emerged into my world like such a breath of fresh air, not just a breath, but a hurricane of fresh air. On this podcast, Molly, Allison, and Aaron reflect on how the band got together, recording their first album, and the scene that inspired them. We'll also hear from their peers, journalists, and younger artists about Potty Mouth's continuing legacy. All of those bands just like completely changed my life because all of a sudden I was like, these are people who look like me and, you know, maybe, like, sound like me and they are, like, outwardly identifying as, like, queer. I'm not saying it sounded easy, but it sounded, like, accessible in a way. It's like, oh, you can just do a band with just a guitar and drums. That's so cool. This is Girl Germs, a short podcast series from Kill Rock Stars. Subscribe to this show and find out more at killrockstars.com. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Sir, Low Leaf, Hosanna's, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.